0: Hello and welcome back. I'm your host, Dandy Zhu, and you're listening to Digital Health Forward, a podcast dedicated to sharing the stories of healthcare entrepreneurs, leaders, and executives who are moving the digital health industry forward. Today's conversation is with Harpreet Singh Rai, CEO of Aura. Aura is the company behind the Aura Ring, a wearable health platform that delivers daily personalized sleep and overall health insights. To date, Aura has sold over 500,000 rings across over 100 countries. In today's episode, Harpreet and I chat about what it means to own your health, trends and innovation in the wearables industry, and Aura's approach to empowering individuals to better understand their health and live healthier, more fulfilled lives. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hey, Harpreet, welcome to the show.
1: Danny, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited to have you. I'm really passionate about all the companies that I brought on to the podcast, but Aura is particularly special because I actually am a consumer and user of the product myself. Uh, Over the past year, I probably opened the Aura app more than any other app on my phone on a daily basis, so I could not be more excited to have the opportunity to share Aura's story and tell our listeners a bit more about the product.
1: Awesome. Well, excited to hear that. I think our team always is excited to hear enthusiastic users. And um, (laughs) yeah, no, thanks. Uh, Thanks for having us on the show.
0: Great. Um, Well, to start, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your personal story and your career path. I saw that you were actually a portfolio manager at a hedge fund before joining Aura. So tell us a little bit more about your arc and how you ended up joining the company.
1: Yeah, it, definitely not like a straightforward line. Um, th- the dots connect in my head, but <laughs> maybe on paper, they all don't. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I think I'd I probably start with two of my passions. You, you know, one was just sort of health and, and at a younger age and, and health and performance. And then the other one was, you know, sort of tech. I, I guess on the health side, you know, frankly, like I, I was really into sports as a kid. Um, soccer was really my main sport. I'm, you know, 5'5". Five, five, on a good day, five, six with a turban. So never put my like basketball <laughs> or football were going to be my thing. But, um, you know, I went to a large public high school, Bridgewater Raritan High, you know, 3,000 kids in New Jersey, go Panthers. And, you know, I, for me, sports is a way of fitting it. You know, I, I, I look different than most kids. And I think, you know, I always sort of looked at sports as something that I, I naturally loved, and especially soccer. But just, oh, you know, frankly, I think it, it gives a lot of people just a community within a, a larger environment in a way that you can sort of feel like you belong. You know, I think the part that sort of sucked was like I wasn't naturally that good, didn't play a lot of sports, you know, at a younger age. And so, you know, sort of early, late middle school, you know, seventh, eighth grade, and then getting into high school, ninth grade was really when I started to get into it. And I just felt like I had to work twice as hard to be half as good as everyone else. And so I felt like no matter what I did training wise, no matter what I did diet wise, I was just always a little bit slower, not as strong as the other kids. You know, I think um, over time, start to learn more things that worked for me. And and that's sort of when I, I started to realize like, oh, wow, other kids on the team can, you know, smoke a pack of cigarettes and, eat, you know, Sour Patch Kids all day. And I feel like if I, I do, you know, if I looked at Sour Patch Kids, I, I you know, I'd run a slower mile, um, So, uh, let alone if I ate them. And so I just, you know, started to realize like the human body was different for everyone and, mm-hmm. and how they reacted is different. And that's fine. That's okay. That's normal. And you just got to find what works for you. That That's hard. And so I think the, the other thing I was always into was tech. My, my dad was a double E. My grandfather was an electrical engineer, double E as well. And so, you know, when I went to college, I went to University of Michigan, you know, thought I was going to be studying electrical engineering. And, and I did. At the time, I sort of gravitated towards MEMS sensors. MEMS is just, you know, sort of sensor design, but stands for microelectronic mechanical systems. And I always just felt like the biggest use case for sensors were eventually going to be measuring things in the human body. Again, just given that context that everyone's so different. You need to sort of understand what works for you. I always felt like sensors could help. Long story short, I, I happened to be graduating in 2007, sort of the you know peak of the financial boom. Michigan's number one in a lot of things. It's also number one in out-of-school state tuition or out-of-state uh, uh, tuition for a public school. And so I had a bunch <laughs> of student debt. And, um, you know, my, I grew up in New Jersey, my sister was living in New York at the time. There wasn't really many engineering jobs in, in New York city. I wanted to live in New York city, um, like most kids in New Jersey do. And I, um, you know, felt like at the time investment banking was something that was interesting to me could, you know, sort of open a door to many careers, not just banking and figured I'd give that a shot and be able to pay off my debt, frankly, in a year or two. And so I did that. I ended up gaining 50 pounds, you know, started to lose hair at the age of twenty-two, just got no sleep. And I think, you know, really that was probably the first after that I ended up going to a hedge fund. Like, you know, a lot of investment bankers sort of go to industry, stay in banking, or go to, you know, private equity or hedge funds. I ended up going to a hedge fund that luckily was you know, much more sustainable work culture wise. I think it was definitely, uh, you know, work hard, but also take care of yourself type culture. We had a gym in the office, we're encouraged to eat healthy, you know, m- mostly everyone did. And so I think that really helped me learn a lot about diet and exercise even more. So I started experimenting with tracking things like carbs, you know, eventually did a keto diet, you know, eventually did carb cycling, did intermittent fasting and was able to lose all the weight and, and, and then some. And then I think it was during that, that I sort of gravitated back to using wearables, was writing everything in Excel. And I I just happened to get my hands on a Gen 1 aura ring. They were doing the Kickstarter, December 2015. I ended up getting getting this ring. And honestly, it was the first time I started really tracking sleep. And I started to realize like, holy cow, if I uh, have a better sleep score and readiness score, I'm actually performing better in the gym the next day. I'm actually getting more stuff done on my to-do list. I'm actually a better boss. I'm in a better mood. I'm a better, you know, boyfriend. And so um, I think I, I was 1st firsthand experience of like, oh, wow, I tracked diet, tried all these different things, tracked all the exercises done over the last three to four years, done all these different things from CrossFit to, you know, longer cardio, whatever it may be to interval type workouts. And it was the first time tracking sleep and the effects were just so immediate. It felt like the thing I like literally understood the least. And I just became fascinated with it. Um, fast forward, totally accident, met one of the co-founders uh, in a Whole Foods, probably like three, four months after I'd been using a product you know, he was wearing an Aura t-shirt and he, you know, when, once my, my girlfriend actually spotted him, started talking to him and was telling him I was obsessed with the ring. And then he, he saw him and he was like, "Wow, well, that's the first ring I've seen outside the office. So I think at the time they'd only sold a thousand rings um, from the Kickstarter or so. And, you know, I was the first person he had met that had been one of those customers. I ended up long story short, the company was raising money. I invested in the company, joined the board. I think you know that was in September of 2016. About two, three months later, uh, the founders and the board asked me to join uh, full time. Took me a couple months to leave and you know uh, the hedge fund because I'd been there for nine years. And um, but eventually I left and you know managed all of that um, with the team there. Didn't want to leave them hanging and joined as president. And then I think after really helping grow the company, and grow the team a bit in the U.S. and helping raise you know more capital for the company, the board thought it would be best that I take uh, take the role of CEO. And so that was a little bit over three years ago now um, that I've been CEO four years with the company now. And yeah, it's been quite the journey. I've learned a ton and still have even way more to learn still. But long story short, that's how I got involved.
0: Wow, that is an incredible story, and I cannot believe you you happened to meet the co-founder at a Whole Foods just grocery shopping one day. that That's just such an incredible um, happenstance encounter. But very cool. So you alluded to readiness score and sleep scores, but for our listeners who don't know, could you tell us a little bit more about what the ring is measuring? and also more broadly, like what is the mission and vision of Aura as a company?
1: Yeah, I'll start with the mission and vision because I think I got into it just a little bit. Our our mission is to empower everyone to own their potential, and I I guess the really the question is what is what does that mean? What is I'll just pick a few words. Potential. I think people hear potential, they think physical performance, but I I think you know that's frankly pretty. we're, We're thinking way beyond that. Everything I said about like when I got good sleep and had a high readiness score, yeah, I did better in the gym. But I also was more productive at work and more focused. I also was in a better mood, right? And and I, you know, frankly, was was a kind of person. So I think there's all these other benefits of great sleep. And, it, and it's really about like your potential is sort of your why. You know, my why when I was 18 years old or, or 16 years old was like, I want to be starting on the field on the varsity soccer team. That was my why, really. Right. You know, maybe in college it became much more like, hey, I want to get really good grades so I can make sure I get a good job. I want to be wanna be in sort of, you know, the top 10% of my class. Hey, when I started working at the hedge fund, it was like, man, I want to be really sharp and be able to work hard and be productive so I can prove myself and get promoted to being a portfolio manager. You know, I think now at aura, my why is like. You know, I want to be sharp and focused and there for the team, thinking about how the space evolves and helping us grow as a company. And, you know, there's, I think everyone's why and potential changes as they go through different phases of life. And, you know, better health allows us to do all of that. So I think that that covers potential. I think the idea of sort of ownership, we want people to own it. I think health is one of these things that remains elusive for most people. You don't know who you should listen to. Should you listen to your doctor? Should you listen to your friend who appears healthy? Should you listen to that podcast where they get in a lot of details on a intermittent fasting keto diet? You know, or should you look at this app, my fitness pal and track your, your carbs that way? So I think this idea of ownership is putting the agency back in the individual's hands. That it doesn't belong to someone else, that actually this is, this is all, this potential, this understanding, even our health is all with inside of us. We just to list, have to listen to clues our body has given us. And we think with Aura, wearable health platform, that eventually we can help to do that and, and many different facets of your health. But, but that's really our mission. But yeah so on the product side maybe i would say that the areas where people sort of might notice the biggest difference versus other wearables is, is a couple one we're a ring <laughs> so we're not a wristband so that was definitely chosen and and on purpose for for a reason and then i think the other main thing people notice is like the heavy emphasis on sort of sleep and recovering something we call readiness so today in the app if you know if you if you got the product wearing the Oura ring you know the way you most people use it is you sort of wake up every morning and you open the app and you check three main scores. You know, we have a sleep score, we have activity score, and we have a readiness score. You know, sleep score is is just looking at the quality of your sleep you know, we have a bunch of different sort of factors in the app that we measure the different stages, REM, light, deep sleep, you know, when you went to bed, how consistent were you in your timing, how much of the night were you awake versus actually asleep. And, you know, we we sort of have these weightings and these contributors that we give, you know, users every morning and eventually a sleep score. Then we have the activity score. You, you know, when you wake up in the morning, you get your activity goal for the day. That goal does uh, actually adjust based on your long-term sleep and activity patterns. And we'll get into that in a, in a second, but your activity score would measure everything... You know, you would think sort of, hey, here's your daily goal. You know, do you move every hour? You know, how intense are you moving? All these different factors and ways there. But the main score in the Aura app is something called a readiness score. Just seeing that data from a sleep score and a readiness score can sort of be confusing on what to do with it and what does it mean. So this readiness score ends up taking a holistic view at your two-week average of sleep and activity patterns and also your prior day and prior night patterns. And then we look at, at that sort of short-term and long-term balance of your sleep and activity. But then we look at a couple of physiological signals or digital biomarkers, if you want to think about it that way, your resting heart rate, what was you know, the, the absolute value of your lowest resting heart rate versus the norm? When did it happen early in the night, late in the night? What was your respiratory rate? What was your you know, change in your temperature? What was, you know, even even something like heart rate variability, which is a great indicator of stress. And so we look at those, those factors along with and those digital biomarkers, along with the short term and long term sleep, and we give people an overall readiness score. How ready are you to attack the day? And this gets back to your potential, whether your day is, hey, I got six meetings straight Or, hey, no, my day is I need to crush this workout today. Or my day is, oh, wow, I'm going to be with, you know, my parents and, you know, my in-laws all day and that's stressful enough and kids and whatnot. And, you know, I think, um, again, it gets back to your potential. But that's sort of the idea of the readiness score. I think beyond the data, what's more interesting about Aura as a product and the product experience we give you little insights. So every day we give you insights in our recommendation engine on those three scores and things that you can do to help improve it. But hopefully, you know, I think it's those insights that people look at that they start to realize like, hey, today might be a good day to take it easy. Or today it looks like your readiness is really high. You know, you should try actually increasing your activity levels or might be a really good day to get a lot of work done on your to-do list. Um, but we try to give people little insights based on the patterns and the data we see hope let me know if there's anything else you want me to elaborate on the app before I jump into the ring.
0: Yeah, that was super helpful. I think just to chime in on a personal perspective, I think for me, seeing all of this data helps also motivate me to hopefully change behaviors and build healthier habits, especially when it came to my sleep. So I feel like when I first got the ring, there was definitely this diagnostic phase, I suppose, where... I started to understand my sleep temperature in the room that was off or perhaps, you know, my restfulness was bad because there were distractions and noises and things like that. And so I, I found that level of insight in the very beginning, just incredibly helpful to start getting me on the right path to build healthier habits. So hopefully it's also been motivating to, you know, beha- change behavior over time.
1: Yeah, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll double click on that for a minute. Um, I think we call it it's this really interesting behavior change pattern of like when you wake up first thing in the morning and check your data, users, you know, look at the scores and the insights and they start to ask themselves, wait, what did I do yesterday? Like, why is my data better today? Or why is my data worse? And then you start to honestly think, oh wow, I ate dinner really late yesterday and Oura ring's saying my heart rate's up. Or hey, yesterday was the first day that I actually worked out really hard in a long time you know today like that may be that may be something that like wow like my body's not used to this i shouldn't try to work out that hard that quick i need to ease back into my routine so i definitely think there's something about checking that data in the morning, thinking about what you did the prior day, that, that gives a little bit of that feedback and behavior change.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I feel like b- because the feedback is so quick, you can actually attribute it to certain actions that you took the previous day, right? And oftentimes, I don't think we get that level of real-time feedback and in other ways um, if we didn't have a tracker like this. And I think the other really interesting use case that I've heard about a lot from friends or is talked about a lot, uh, the OR ring is that it's actually caught... COVID or, you know, when people get sick before they even realize because their temperature is up, their resting heart rate is up. And it's, it's crazy because it's not, you know, technically a medical device, but it's definitely actually prompted people to get COVID tests and all of that when they probably wouldn't have otherwise known.
1: Totally. I think, um, getting back to like reflecting on the data, if you get a low readiness score, we heard this from so many users, over the last 18 months that oh wow my readiness score dropped and it said my body temperature is up a degree but to your point Danny it was also like hey my resting heart rate was like 20% higher than normal or 10% higher than normal and my respiratory rate was changed a lot and you ask yourself like wait I didn't do anything I didn't eat late I didn't drink alcohol I didn't like change my workout routine super drastically like what's going on or I didn't have like a super stressful day and then you know people start to realize like wow maybe I'm getting sick Um, that's, that's literally what we had heard, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of times over the, over the course of the last few years where, um, luckily you start to understand your health, really understand what's going on and ask yourselves, oh, wait, yes, is is something going on? And in the case of COVID, you know, I think it caused a lot of people to go get tested earlier than they normally would have because they weren't feeling symptoms, but their data was changing. So yeah, ended up being super, super helpful during that time period.
0: Definitely. Um, you mentioned you wanted to talk a little bit about the ring and uh, the intentionality behind the design.
1: Yeah. So I think for us, you know, part of wearables, there's probably like a, a lot of different problems in the space still yet to yet to be solved. But but one of them we always felt what felt was accuracy and usability, like sort of you know convenience. I, I think. Kara Swisher probably said it best a couple of years ago. She calls most wearables unwearables from the convenience perspective. She's like, I got to charge this thing every day. Actually, it's giving me notifications and distracting me even more. And it doesn't look that great. Like I'd never wear a Fitbit with like a nice outfit or dress if I was going out to dinner at a really expensive restaurant. And, you know, I think they're not that convenient. I think we designed Oura Ring to be really convenient. Charge lasts for five to six days for it to blend into your life, not have any, you know, haptics or, you know, notifications every 10 minutes where you get distracted, but really blend in and be convenient. And, you know, the ring's titanium, so it's also waterproof or water resistant, I should say, to like 100 or 150 meters. It doesn't scratch that easily and it's really light. Users tell us all the time they forget it's there versus a wrist. If you're, you know, wrist strapped, you're wearing it to bed, it's sort of tight around your wrist, can be buzzing during the night. You know, it's just uncomfortable to to have that on all the time. You know, straps break a lot. That's actually a, a big problem still with, with a lot of the wrist-based, sense, uh, wrist-based devices. On the other side, though, on the accuracy piece, I think that's really where we took a different approach. Most people probably know this, but haven't really thought about why. I, I think if you if you walk into any hospital, right, or ICU, most most of your heart rate is being monitored in those environments on your finger and your SpO2. Most diabetics, right, you're, you're actually pricking your finger with a lancet and and you're you're sampling blood there. And so the question is like, why why are these medical devices right measuring on this certain point? Well, well, it turns out your, your finger and your hand has some really cool, unique, uh, like anatomical features, I should say. You know, we we all sort of were taught to measure our pulse on the inside of our wrist. You know, on the inside of your wrist, you have those rich arteries and that's why you can feel your pulse there. If you look at your hand, um, those same arteries, the blood flow goes into the palm of your hand and your fingers and the skin is really thin and transparent. And so, you know, you can almost see the reddish hue. And so, what that means in terms of the electrical engineers in the room, that, that pulse signal strength, the, the strength of that, that pulse signal in an optics perspective is about two orders of magnitude stronger on the finger than sort of the back of your wrist uh, where your wristwatch sits. So uh, about a hundred times stronger. And that's because you have those arteries, not veins. Uh, those arteries are close to the surface of the skin. And so all that rich blood flow that we're measuring with optics is right there uh, versus on sort of where your Fitbit or your Apple watch sits on the backside of your wrist Think about it. You, you know, if you're like me, um, you have darker skin and hair. Um, but you also everyone has like you know a lot more fat there, a lot more um, compared to the palm of your hand. You have thicker skin. You have you know a lot more bones there. You have a lot more muscle tissue and fiber. And so the optical signal is a lot weaker. And so most people don't know this, but most wearables are just pulsing the LEDs, the optics for a short amount of time, and then they're extrapolating. They're not measuring continuously because that pulse is so weak on, on the wrist there that the battery would die if you did measure it continuously. So with Aura Oura Ring all throughout the night, because of that rich pulse signal, we're able to actually measure continuously every single beat. That's why we're the only wearable that actually shows your heart rate and heart rate variability 99 and 98% correlated to an EKG all throughout the night because we can actually capture Capture the data. Um, You know, your Apple Watch, your Fitbits, they're sampling that data intermittently, you know, same with other devices like Whoop even and Garmin, and then they're extrapolating it. So I think for us, we felt like seeing all the data at the highest, you know, uh, signal to noise ratio, the best quality, that's actually where all these algorithms are created is on that rich data set. So having a little bit more accurate data and a richer signal helps a lot in our view. And I think we've proven it in the literature. And, you know, frankly, I think all of our partners from the NBA to WNBA, UFC, NASCAR, Red Bull Racing, and even some of the corporate partners we have have all looked at that accuracy. And, you know, I think the medical journals now prove it. You know, I think we're the only wearable to have that for heart rate and heart rate variability for like a consumer grade wearable um, at 99 and 98% correlates in EKG. All throughout the night, we just had a, an updated um, sleep algorithm published in, in a journal showing actually our sleep staging accuracy for REM light deep is better than any other wearable really out there in the space if you compare it against the other literature. Um, we've actually shown it even in some other cool applications like women's health or even illness. We had some really interesting data during COVID published there with uh, a study we did with UCSF and with Berkeley and Women's Health. So I think there's, you know, this higher accuracy is starting to prove itself now in the medical journals. And we hope to get more and more of that out of there. But hopefully that answers, Danny, the question of to why a ring.
0: Yeah. And that's amazing that you've been able to achieve that level of accuracy in such a seamless form factor that, you know, doesn't interrupt your life and is actually fun to wear. So it's it's really a marvel. I wanted to ask on the topic of the validating all of the the tech and the re- reliability you've been able to achieve, how should we be thinking about, from a regulatory perspective, the boundaries between what Aura has built versus you know, a traditional medical device? And at what point does Aura need to or have to uh, start thinking about some of those regulatory considerations, if at all?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. You know, I think I would say this space has mainly gone unregulated so far. And I think it's because of two words or, you know, or a statement typically when you think about sort of FDA regulatory approval, typically it, the devices in that space have to diagnose and or treat. And I think right now these devices are mainly used in, in a way that I almost call like car, you know, like your check engine light, it's actually just giving a little bit of an early warning to the consumer, right? A better understanding of their health. And we're not diagnosing or treating. So, you know, if it looks like you may be getting sick with aura because you see your heart rate's really elevated or that you see your temperature is up, um, we're not saying, hey, you have COVID. You know, what we're saying is, hey, something looks off in your data. And, you know, some of the the stuff we've shown, we can say is like other people who've seen this, uh, many of them may have gotten sick in the past. Um, you may want to go take it easy today. You may be getting sick. And I think it's it's that sort of warning light approach, just like you see in your car. Hey, something's off. Maybe you should go talk to a doctor. And I, I think it's that approach that really keeps this whole space sort of further away from the regulatory space. We're not saying, Hey, you have COVID or Hey, you have, you you know, you have some cardiovascular disease, or even, Hey, you have sleep apnea. I think so far, these wearables have been used as, Hey, here's what we're seeing in your data. Here are some patterns we may have seen with other people, but you may want to go get this checked by a medical professional.
0: Got it. Okay. That makes a ton of sense. One last question before we talk a bit more about the partnerships and, uh, some of the recent news that you guys have announced but in terms of the industry I would love to hear from your perspective how we should be orienting ourselves in terms of the different segments within wearables and you know there's just so many different types of technologies being developed these days and so many new players sprouting up but how do you as CEO of Aura orient yourself? Um, and how do you think about all of these different players that are currently in the landscape?
1: Yeah, it's, it's it's a really good question. I think the hedge fund analyst in me takes a step back and I look at a space and say, there's a lot of wearables sort of you know, being shipped. And a lot of them, you know, I think people even count for these smart speakers, these Bluetooth headphones now are, are actually a lot of it. If you sort of look at Classically, what's called sort of smart watches or activity trackers. You know, those are about, I think IDC numbers are sort of at like 180 million for 2020. And they've been growing like, you know, 10 to 15%. Though during COVID, I think the space accelerated to over 20% type year over year growth. I then take a look at like a very mature industry like smartphones. Smartphones, annual shipments are well over a billion units. They have been sort of a billion units for, you know, the last few years consistently, not growing that much actually in terms of units. So that's sort of like penetration i think in order to get sort of the the wearable space health wearables i call them into sort of you know more a larger unit number is the honestly the expanding use cases in the health so i think that you know these mainly started step trackers um then got into sort of activity tracking like what's your heart rate after you work out and i think now where these use cases are going into is a lot more things like health like hey tracking sleep Hey, tracking if you may be getting sick. Hey, tracking if you're a woman, like your cycle. And so I think as even things like eventually getting sleep apnea, blood pressure, you know, cardiovascular disease. So I think as these use cases start to expand beyond just step tracking and activity tracking, you're going to see this market accelerate. And I think, you know, that's that's literally what we just saw during COVID. So I do think over time, the more these use cases that get developed on these health wearables, the more they get validated, proven out, figure out new business models, not just direct to consumer, but even potentially partnering with uh, employers or partnering with healthcare providers and payers. I think that can really help accelerate this space as it evolves from, you know, I call it wearables 1.0 to 2.0, sort of step trackers, activity trackers to, you know, health wearables. Hopefully that helps answer that question.
0: Yeah, it does. It makes me think about, you know, recently there's been a lot more continuous glucose monitoring tech that's starting to, you know, market towards consumers. And the interesting implication, I think, is that primary care physicians are not equipped to take on all the new demand and actually have the time and bandwidth to even you know, help patients understand some of that data. And so there's all these other stakeholders in the healthcare system that seem to need to be on board and also caught up in terms of intaking all of this data and helping patients actually make sense of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a tricky thing, you know. It's like I went to Michigan, love love the school, love Ann Arbor, you know, but they don't teach people in, in you know the pre med or, or the medical school like how to look at wearable data or CGM data. Yeah,
0: yes. yeah, yes, exactly. It's not
1: part of the curriculum yet, so you can't really. <laughs> Can't really fault any of the doctors out there. Uh, That's not what they were taught and that's not how they learned. But I think it starts with, frankly, just going right to the consumer, empowering Mm -hmm. the consumer first. Then us, I think, as new technology, new companies, it's up to us to actually show the industry that hey these things can be valid and back it up with research. I think that's why as a you know a startup in an early wearable we've done so much research because we we sort of recognize that this education is needed, not just for the consumer, but also for the industry. And then I think, you know, the more and more data you collect, the more and more sort of um, ways you show you can provide value to the industry, then you know you're going to see people adopt it. And yeah, it's not going to be every doctor overnight, but there are a lot of forward-thinking doctors now. And we see them from cardiologists to dietitians that are like hey you should be tracking your sleep to consumers like here's a device we really like here's a wearable we really like and here's a little bit on how you can learn how to interpret some of the information over time I think that may mean hey okay now we can actually ingest this data and look at this for you so instead of asking you when you come in every two years hey how is your stress how's your sleep and how's your diet and and are you exercising you know doctors will be able to look at that data but I, I think you know it's taken time it is slow but it's also, I would say the onus is on us as a company Mm -hmm. in this space to actually validate that and show that to the industry and the consumers as well. And I think a lot of the early space has not done that. You know, Fitbits, um, when they first came out, I think, you know, Jawbones, even Apple, right? The first few generations, none of this stuff was really ever validated. And so I think a lot of it, frankly, was marketing. And I think it's it's on us as these sensors improve, as these wearable devices improve and have newer, more accurate locations like like a ring and a finger. You know, I think that's, that's something that we feel like was missing in this space and why, and frankly, literally why we chose this form factor. So we hope to change uh, those stigmas.
0: You mentioned earlier as well, some of the partnerships that Aura has established with a lot of different sports leagues, um, including the NBA and the WNBA and NASCAR. Um, Could you just tell us a little bit more about what these partnerships look like and what the impact Aura has had for these players and organizations?
1: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I think last year, right, it was sort of like as sports sort of reopened first, right? And we're trying to figure out how to get back to like doing business in person, it, uh, in real life IRL. I, I think, you know, they they had no choice but to think about like, wow, what can we do to be the best employers we can be? And, and I think that's why you saw sort of the NBA, WNBA sort of step forward first there, you know, they were... Trying to figure out how to reopen, you know, actually reopen in bubbles, um, and you know, wanted to keep everyone safe. Um, obviously, your average work environment can't do that yet. Like, keep you in a bubble overnight, like all employees in Google. Hey, you want to come back to work? All right, you got to sleep here too. I think that that would be hard <laughs> to straight. But uh, I think you know these these sports leagues were really some of the first to get you know going back to work. And and by the way, no one's an expert in going back to work yet. You know, any company that thinks they've solved it or organization. I think if you talk to the ones who are doing it and are figuring it out, everyone sort of met. No one's an expert yet, but I think they, they sort of looked at this as an opportunity to be a better employer, give people access to this, this technology that looks like there's a lot of promise, like in the case of Oura Ring. You know, some of the research has shown that majority of people that if they do get sick, even with COVID or other influenza-like illnesses, they're seeing their data change up to three days before they feel sick. You know, that was for you know seventy-six percent of participants in in the early data that we published in that study. You now, or UCSF published. Sorry. So I think I think the NBA, you know, WNBA, all these sports leagues really found that interesting. UFC, um, so many more. And I think you know now we're starting to see that spread to other employers as other employers think about how to reopen. You know, obviously, I think they can take more precautions because they don't have to have everyone come back at once, nor do employees want to anymore either. It's a whole separate issue. I think, I think they're starting to realize that, like, health meant better health, keeping everyone healthy meant keeping the doors open, and uh, in order to do that, you know, we still need people in real life. And here's ordering ring, and in in, in a way that you could potentially use it. Uh, So, I think for us, it showed that you know, credibility, I think it showed forward thinking on employer side, and and frankly, um, a lot of interest from the actual end user side. So I think all those partnerships were a great success for us and for those organizations as well.
0: On the point of corporate employers like Google, how do you think about privacy concerns? Or how should employees be thinking about, you know, if their employer has access to certain data, you know, what access they should have or not?
1: Yeah. It's a great, great question. I think, luckily, you know, frankly, we have an awesome team um, behind us here at Aura. And one of the cool <laughs> things we we thought through um, that our team thought through was like, how can we share this data in sort of an anonymous but still useful way? So, um, for COVID, for example, and influenza-like illness, we, we created this portal called Health Risk Management. And the way it works, and this is, you know, frankly, how the NBA and WNBA and all those organizations I talked to deployed it is actually those coaches and those and, and, you know, the staff didn't actually see if a certain player was getting sick. The data was actually de-identified. But what you could, what the player would get is a notification in the app, which the employer could actually automate um, and set that if someone's risk score got above a certain level, um, it could say, you know, just hypothetically saying this, hey, it looks like you may be getting sick. Make sure you stop by the medic tent first and see, you know, Steve, I'm just making that name up, you know, before you check in practice today. And that was a way of like actually giving that information again back to the end user first, empowering that end individual first. And you know, keeping their data actually safe. Now, if you imagine it from an employer's perspective or that team or that coach, you know, if they see one person with a high risk score, okay, cool, not a big deal. But if you the next day see three people on your roster of 15 for NBA, all of a sudden the the day after sort of starting to trend high. And then you see five people the day after that, you may be like, oh wow, something's spreading. Actually, I'm gonna change it up and just have. Everyone go get tested again, not reporting to into the office today. Um, so I think they still found it very helpful from a population health management perspective, yet, you know, not actually knowing, hey, what time did someone sleep? What was their resting heart rate last night? Frankly, those employers didn't actually want to know that information. You know, I think there's a lot of risk to the employer, too. Just like, you know, employees at Google, it'd be creepy if your boss knew what time you went to bed. Imagine that for a, a coach. If a head coach that's going to the playoffs sees his starting point guard may have only got four hours of sleep last night, does he start him still? That that brings it to all this contract stuff, you know. Yeah. And, and even if he, you know, like Steph Curry, Steph Curry only slept four hours. Damn, I'd still start them every night. Um, you, know, so, <laughs> you know, we the the employers, or even in this case, you know, sports coaches, don't necessarily want all that data either. And so I think we we figured out a way to do it anonymously um, to give sort of group stats, you know, but yet still inform the individual first. Let them again be empowered and take action. Yeah, but I, I'd say a lot of organizations aren't there. We were talking to a senior partner at at, a, at an investment bank that you know everyone everyone listening to this would know the name, and they were just like, man, we we understand you. Like, we understand what you're saying, but we literally don't think our employees trust us. Even if we tell them this data is anonymous and we don't see it, but we could tell if 5, 10 or 25 people are getting sick on the 26th floor, you know, they, yes, that would be helpful to us to, like, tell everyone to stay home. Let's say if we saw something like that from a trend, but they were pretty upfront. They're just like, we don't think the trust is there with with their employees yet. And that's where I think then, hey... Actually, as an employee, people need to wisen up and understand that like you're trying to just like getting a vaccine or or, or doing a COVID test. Like you, you, you're actually keeping others safe, not just, not just you. This isn't just about you and your data. It's also about, you know, the, the community and the environment you're in. And so I think we're actually starting to see, you know, Las Vegas Sands was one of our uh, partners that we announced publicly, uh, you know, when they were opening, reopening casinos back in Vegas earlier in the pandemic. And they wanted to keep their, you know, their casino workers safe. And so, you know, they got O-rings for all of them. And we found so much amazing buy-in. In In fact, I'd almost say they're like more enthusiastic than some of the pro sports teams. (laughs) Holy cow, this is so cool. I'm learning so many things about my health. And then, you know, we did hear stories from some of them like, wow, I found out I was getting sick through this first and I went and got tested and I was able to keep other people safe uh, because I found out I was sick before I felt symptoms. And so I think, I think as you start to see this more and more evolved and more and more education spread, you know, to the employees, to the employers, you know, to the even we were talking about providers earlier, healthcare providers. So I think doctors, so I think the more and more you see unique tools, software tools built, data sharing tools that make it safe to do that. And really the benefits still communicated and the weaknesses communicated to individuals, you know, I think, I think you'll see more buy-in. So I think a lot of it just takes education, takes breaking down those walls. And frankly, these things are complex, right? They're not so straightforward and simple. Like most people, you know, probably including myself, don't know how to log into my benefits platform at work. Like, you know, most people, most employees just ignore that, e- that email, right? Um, <laughs> So I think as an it's it's a hard thing too from an employer perspective to get people to understand um, that's not something always seen as like hey this is my my core job um, so I, I feel for the employ employer side as well
0: yeah wow that's fascinating um, and it's great to hear how much thoughtfulness has been put into you know access and de-identification to protect privacy and make people hopefully feel a little bit more trusting <laughs> in yeah, order I mean, to also, help the greater I, cause
1: I should I think. Uh, our, our all our legal counsel. It was like, how can you not mention this? We're we're actually GDPR <laughs> compliant. So you know, I think everything we do, we're one of the only wearable companies that is. You know, GDPR is even stricter mm-hmm. as the EU standard than than some of the HIPAA and other US um, protection laws out there. Yeah, but all of our data is de-identified. So I just wanted to throw that out there. I forgot to mention <laughs> that earlier. Sorry to interrupt.
0: No, not at all. Great. So wanted to shift gears and. And with some parting reflections, I heard recently, you guys raised a hundred million dollar capital infusion for the Series C round. Um, congratulations! What are some of Aura's priorities um, with this new capital in the near term, and are there new use cases that Aura is thinking about investing in?
1: Yeah. Well, thanks again. You know, I think, frankly, having a team, an awesome team, help is really what helps make this all possible. And, and frankly, even, you know, consumers like yourself, like just understanding a product that, um, you know, that takes time and energy and telling other people about it. So, you know, thank you for that, too. I think in terms of areas we're investing in, I think it's all the ones that the wearable space is investing in. You now, I think you're seeing, again, these these use cases expand from sort of just steps, but into more health use cases. So. You know, things like sleep apnea, things like women's health, we think are really interesting illness. There's still a lot to do there. I think, unfortunately, you know, every every year, thousands of people in a hospital environment die of sepsis or hospital acquired infections. That's something that I think we can help prevent. And uh, I would, you know, love to see that happen. You know, I think there's things like COPD or, or, you know, uh, all types of cardiac disease. So I think there's all these use cases um, from a health perspective. Luckily, there's no shortage of them. Uh, where where we're investing in and trying to learn more about how we can add value uh, and improve outcomes and, and understanding in terms of just priorities and goals, I think you know there there's a lot. Um, we have five main goals as a company every year, and you know we we sort of form a corporate strategy um, over a shorter term and longer term periods to to you know help shape those annual goals. I think on, on our side, some of the ones that I always look at are like, you know, improving our accuracy, building our capability, you know, really building our credibility. That's always one of our goals, right? I think, you know, we, we have to be able to grow and survive as a startup. So, you know, there's always a revenue target and goal. But I think some of the other ones really that we're trying to focus a lot more on are on community and, and frankly, helping people like education understand the data. I, I often say there's two problems in this space. If you talk to consumers who've tried wearables, it's typically they don't know if this data is accurate. And they don't know how to use the data. And so I always try to think about like, how do we keep helping solve that? So I think shorter term, it's like, I, I try to keep, you know, focus on an, on an annual basis with a company, definitely looking at some of these future health use cases. Longer term, I do think in order to really get significant growth in the industry and for Aura, we got to invest more in the R&D and being able to crack some of those other health use cases. I think, you know, the more we do that, uh, the more we can invest and build a team around that from a science and research perspective, product development perspective, which is really hard for some of those software tools we were talking about earlier, especially as you get into the healthcare provider and payer space. I think investing in that longer term in those use cases and those tools is is really, really important to help us sort of change the way the industry is being operated today.
0: Sounds like an exciting time, um, and I'm looking forward to following the journey as you guys continue to develop the platform. Last question before we part, uh, but any words of advice for other entrepreneurs, um, young professionals who are also hoping to make a difference in healthcare?
1: I, I think you know it, it ends up coming down to the team, the team, the team. you know really invest in your team, hire the best people you can that can help tackle and solve these problems. I think one person sort of can't do anything really by themselves, but it's like when you get a group of collective individuals with different skill sets and backgrounds that you can really create something really useful and helpful. So I think ultimately it comes down to, you know, really the team. I think the other thing is like, don't get frustrated, you know, for every one person who understands it feels like there's going to be 10 that don't and that's okay. You know, you still hopefully are making a difference for that one person. But if, if you apply that math against like the population of the U S it's like, cool, 30 million people may get it, but 270 million may not. And that's fine. Um, so I think uh perfect's the enemy of good, you know, don't be shocked if there's more naysayers and believers, but just do what you can and and do your part and build an awesome team behind it because that's what's going to help you you know tackle tackle all those hard problems.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much, Harpreet, uh, for joining us today and sharing all of your insights and Aura's story. I'm hoping our listeners out there are inspired and look more into getting an Aura for themselves if they don't have one already. But thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Dandy. I, I really appreciate it. I think honestly, like people like you getting out there and getting this information on some of these newer companies and what they're doing, you know, helps, helps everyone learn. And so really appreciate the work you do. And thanks for having us on the podcast.
0: Thank you.